Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Whole Lotta Nothing. My name is Jamie, Jamie Lee, and you can find me on Instagram at James Life, life with an extra E, that's at James, L-I-F-E-E. Today, we are doing this podcast a little bit different than we have done in the past, as RJ, aka Roland Prince, is a little busy today. So he's he's got some client work that he can't do or can't make today. So I was like, you know what? Screw it. I'll do a solo cast today and we'll see how it goes. Which, by the way, I will say, uh, little side note, I actually recorded this podcast uh, like five minutes ago. I just finished it. It took me an hour and 15 minutes long to go through it. And I realized I did not hit the record button properly and I didn't actually record any of it. So, yep, this is attempt number two at recording a really long pod today. Um, figured I'd talk a little bit about my adventures as a solo traveler and what my trip this summer actually meant to me because I can really dive into it uh, fairly deep, not as deep as I'd like because that would take me like 10 hours or more to talk about all the stories and all the things, but I do want to provide some value into solo travel, into Southeast Asia as well as tell some of the stories and kind of tell the meaning behind what this whole journey and adventure I went on this summer meant to me. So don't mind me. I am just opening a water bottle because I will get caught in mouth if I continue doing this. So quick little sip. Ah. But anyways, before I get into any of that stuff, kind of what I want to include at the beginning is that we do or we are at the moment running our first giveaway. So if you listen to our most recent podcast called uh, our very first giveaway or something along those lines, you'll see it on Spotify, iTunes, Anchor, wherever you decide to listen to your pods. Um, Yeah, so if you listen to that, you'll find out all the details and kind of what we're doing right now is we are giving away a, uh, I got an extra copy of a book that I'm reading, um, which is a great book called High Performance Habits by Brendan Burchard, phenomenal, uh, inspirational dude. And basically what it is, is it provides uh, how you can become a high performer. So a top 15% individual, whether that's uh, in terms of fulfillment, whether that's in terms of your financial success, whether that's your performance at work or at school, top 15%, how do you become that? And how do people consistently over the long term What are the habits of those that are really successful and what do they always do and what do they all have in common? What are the things that they master on a micro and a macro level? Fascinating, incredibly interesting self-development and improvement book. We are running the giveaway out until Saturday. So if you are interested in that, you can check it out. Uh, All we are asking for for you to do is to send us at WLN podcast in the DMS. What are the habits that you would develop or that you think would be most important in a post apocalyptic world? If you listen to the whole podcast, you'll find out all the context behind that question, but that is what we are asking. So message us at WLN podcast and uh, we will sort through and we will uh, choose some of the answers and eventually we'll come down to one person to, uh, to be the winner. We have a few entries so far, but uh, if, so if you want to get in there, Make sure you do it soon. This is coming out, or this is ending on, I believe, Saturday. Uh, is that February 1st? Um, let me check. Uh, no, uh, no, so, wow, I'm stupid. That would be Saturday, February 5th. 
Or no, no, that's I'm looking at the wrong calendar. Jesus. Uh, Saturday, February 2nd. So, yeah, February 2nd. Uh, make sure that you message us at WLN Podcast with that question. But anyways, another quick water. Okay. So what I'm going to be talking about today, and it's probably going to take me a little bit of, um, of time, especially after I've done it once already and took me about an hour and 15. It might take longer. It might take less. Um, again, like pretty much every podcast, uh, we try to do these off the top of our head. We don't have scripts. We don't have planned ideas. Um, but seeing as I already did record one on this topic, I'm just going to do it again But and kind of go through it uh, maybe with uh, different energy and, and whatnot. So what I'm going to be talking about is solo travel and the adventure that I did this summer uh, through Southeast Asia, which also led me to Western Australia for a brief time uh, and kind of what it meant to me and why I recommend solo travel so much um, and kind of how it all started. So I'm going to start right from the beginning. I'm going to talk about all the things leading up to the day I left and then kind of my itinerary where I went through the places uh, I went to and visited, what I loved, and the experiences that I had. Um, And so this kind of all began uh, probably about two years ago uh, when I was researching places in the world to swim with manta rays. Uh, if you don't know what manta rays are, manta rays, they look like stingrays, except with about like 12 to 15 foot wide wingspans. Uh, they don't have stingers. They're incredibly docile, harmless, intellectual, and curious creatures. Since I was a kid, they've been one of my dream animals to experience with in the wild. And I knew that they'd be, since they're so curious, there are so many places to swim with them that aren't invasive and are humane and you can have an incredible experience. And so I started Googling, finding out where in the world I can swim with mantas. Uh, And I kept looking and looking, and the first option that I thought I was gonna take was Kona, Hawaii. And I was like, okay, like you can fly to Hawaii from Ottawa for like five, 600 bucks, like this would be cool, like I could go for a few days. Uh, swim with mantas and that'd be cool. Um, and then I started asking some friends, uh, had moderate interest, but nobody that was as serious as what I wanted to do, which is fine. Um, and then eventually I realized that my goals, if I want to become a professional videographer, travel videographer and filmmaker, um, and photographer, I'm going to have to do some serious investing in my gear and equipment. And this was like probably beginning in 2017, Um, And I was like, I can't do this trip because I have to upgrade my laptop as it just cannot compete with Premiere and After Effects and just high computing work. So pro tip, if you're ever into a creative field, whether it's graphic design, motion graphics, um, you know, videography, photography, you need to use a lot of high computing power. Uh, I do recommend getting a very solid laptop because the investment might be a couple grand, but it will save you so much money. And if you are going to be making money from your laptop, spending that extra uh, those extra dollars just to have a better processor, more RAM, uh, more storage, all these other specs, like does make a big difference and is a big deal. So if you are in a creative space, I can't recommend investing in a laptop enough because that is going to be your machine moving forward, and you need that to work. Um, but anyway, so I was looking through Kona, things weren't working, so I canceled the trip. I didn't book anything, but I canceled the idea of the trip. And then I was like, okay, like let's keep looking at other places. And eventually I saw that you can 
swim with manta rays out in Indonesia. And I was like, oh, well, like, I've heard good things about Bali. And it was, like, just outside of Bali. And I was like, wow, I've heard good things about Bali. It's supposed to be, Southeast Asia is supposed to be incredibly affordable. And uh, I was like, okay, like, maybe this is it. Like, it is the other side of the world. But, like, I was like, how crazy would it be if I went to the other side of the world just to swim with these creatures? I was like, that would be nuts. Like, I don't know anybody else that has done that. Like, I was like, if I do that, like, yeah, go me. So I was like, that was kind of when the idea first was planted in my mind. And so I went through that, started kind of researching Southeast Asia, and I realized I was like, damn, like Thailand looks beautiful too. And so I kept researching. I was like, what? Okay, so I was like, okay, I'll do like Thailand and Indonesia. I go for like four to six weeks, and I kept doing research. And so probably around August of 2017 is when I really started to get serious about my planning uh, for my trip. And so for those of you that don't know, um, I won't say I'm passionate. I am entirely obsessive. I think it is so far beyond a passion that it consumes every waking thought that I have, which is where am I going next? How can I get there? How can I film it? And how, how, how can I experience new places and add another country to my last list, add a new city, add a new experience, do all these other things. It is a complete and entire consumption of my time. I make, I very rarely think of anything else unless I'm absolutely preoccupied with something. So that is what I'm obsessed and incredibly and just overwhelmingly passionate about is travel, experiencing really incredible moments, animal conservation, filming and photography. I love that stuff, and I've been lucky enough that I've developed these passions over the past couple of years. But anyways, back into kind of the story. So we, or not we, I started looking further and further around August, September, getting more and more research into Thailand and Indonesia, and I was like, damn, like, what if I made this, like, a whole wildlife thing, and, like, my whole purpose is to experience Asian wildlife um, and kind of just go out and see these creatures that I... I've always looked up to. So growing up, I was a kid that was the only content I ever watched was animal based. It was Steve Irwin, Crocodile Hunter, every single day. He ended up dying on my 10th birthday, which was the worst birthday of my life. But I'm not going to talk about that because, you know, it's sad. But anyway, so it was like Steve Irwin, Jeff Corwin, Austin Stevens were my absolute heroes. And I spent so much time watching them. If I was uh, in, in an elementary school, if I was, I would rent out the same five to 10 reptile books over and over and over and over again. And I knew so much about so many different species of snakes, so many different species of like everything. So it was, it was kind of the first time I realized that when I fall in love with something that I find interesting, um, within like a personal degree that I can learn more about, that I can apply myself to, I become overwhelmingly passionate. And so one of my first ones that I ever developed, and I emphasize developed because if you listen to people like Tom Billy, which I couldn't agree more, passions aren't necessarily discovered. They are developed through a process, process of finding curiosity, that sparking that interest, and that interest further gets developed into passions so yes that is kind of how that all started so 
going back from my childhood to kind of the research. And so for a couple months, I started researching Thailand over and over and over again. I started realizing, I was like, oh, wow, there's Bangkok. You've got Chiang Mai in the north. And in Chiang Mai, you've got Chiang Rai. You've got incredible markets, incredible cost of living, where it's about a third to a quarter. You have about like 20 to 30 cents on the dollar value. And that's Canadian dollars. If you have an American currency, it's even stronger. I was like, damn, like this is really, really cool. And so uh, I realized, I was like, okay, like if I... I could do four to six weeks in Asia, probably for the same price that I do two to three in Europe. So I was like, that's when I really started thinking, the longer I go to a place, the more content I can produce, the more greater portfolio I can build, the better content I can get, and the more fun I think that I will have and the more I will learn. And so this whole time, I knew that I had to plan this by myself because I knew that the way I travel is I go to places to film them, to tell their stories, to experience their cultures and their peoples, their their wildlife and all these other things. And I knew that if I was traveling with somebody else, that I'd be just a pain in the ass, you know, editing all the time, wanting to wake up like for sunrise every day when people want to sleep in. Uh, for me, that's what wakes me up. That's what makes me vigorous. That's what I love. But for most people, I knew that that would just be a pain in the ass. People want to go out and they want to you know, like maybe they want to go out for drinks. Maybe they want to have a nice dinner. Whereas I was like, no, I'll eat at home and I will edit every single day. And that's what I ended up doing. I, I will spend extra time at these locations to make sure I get every angle and capture it as beautifully as I can because I love that stuff. And I knew that if I was with somebody that didn't share that, that would be a mistake because they would just create a relationship where they would be dissatisfied with how I was as a travel partner. Um, but anyways, back to the wildlife stuff. So I was considering having... A wildlife expedition extravaganza. So I was gonna, I was gonna volunteer with elephants in the north of Thailand. I was gonna go to the Komodo Islands and see the Komodo dragons. I was gonna swim with manta rays, and I was gonna be like, oh, if I can find whale sharks, I'm gonna do that too. And I had all these animals on my list that I wanted to go see and experience. Um, and I was able to get some of them, uh, not all, because I was traveling extremely spontaneous and things kept changing and changing, which I think is the best way to travel is be open. I'll get to that later. And so I kept researching and looking up vloggers like Lost LeBlanc slash Christian LeBlanc was a Canadian vlogger who has tons and tons and tons of content of just so much value of his experiences in Southeast Asia and how he budgets, where he's gone and all these other things. And I was watching him where he kept raving about the Philippines and I was looking at the drone shots and I was like, I was like, okay, like this looks so incredibly beautiful. Like I have to go. So eventually my plan then turned from Thailand and Indonesia to Thailand, Philippines, Indonesia. And I was going to do them in that order. And eventually I did all three of those, but it was not in that order. and It was not in the time frame that I was expecting. And so eventually by October of 2017, I'm in South America. I'm in Chile for the week. And I'm still thinking every single day about this trip. It's consuming my every move and every thought. And I thought that was so fascinating. Like I'm in the Andes right now. I'm in like, I'm 3000 meters elevation uh, on a glacier in the Andes. And I'm thinking about Asia. And I was like, I was like, okay, like this is uh, at the time I was like, is this a bad thing? And I was like, looking back, I don't think it was because I knew how excited I was to make the dream trip happen the first dream trip that I knew that I had to make happen because it was going to be a culmination of the full experience of what I, of all the things that I love to do, wildlife, photography, filming, and travel. 
all coming together. Uh, and I was going to do that with myself for the first time, which that I thought was going to be the most interesting part. And so after October, I kept doing more and more research, finding more and more ideas. And I was checking flight prices every single day. And eventually I knew the prices of flights so damn well that I was like, okay, like I knew the second I saw any deal, I was like, okay, this is good. This is bad. Uh, even if it was like by as little as like 20 bucks, I was like, oh, I'll save 20 here. And so after checking flight prices round trip through Bangkok uh, for so long, I decided I was like, you know what? I am going to extend my trip from four to six weeks to 10 weeks. And I was like, okay, I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to do it all. I'm going to find a way to make the money and make it happen. And so a year ago today, January 29th, 2018, I ended up booking my flight to Bangkok round trip. And so regular, the prices were typically $950 to $1,050 per like round trip out of Ottawa. Sometimes there were more. Sometimes they were about eleven or twelve hundred. That was pretty common. I somehow managed to find, and I want to be as completely transparent as possible with all my finances that I put into this trip, so that I can provide as much value as I can. I found my round trip flight that I purchased for seven hundred and sixty-three dollars. Blew my mind. It was genuinely cheaper for me to fly round trip to Bangkok than it would be for me to go to friggin' like Alberta that weekend. Or it was probably with the same cost for me to fly to Vancouver, maybe like a hundred dollars more. Like it was it was nuts. It blew my mind how cheap it was to fly to Bangkok. And so I was like, I'm committed. It was late January. I was like, I'm committed, I'm going. I was like, I don't care what, what's happening, like I'm going to make this work, whatever it takes. I was like, I don't even have money to make this work right now, but I'm gonna figure it out. And so I kept planning and researching and doing all my due diligence and making sure that all the details that were, would be figured out, but I, within my planning, I never actually booked anything because I knew that I just wanted my research done, know what every th- every cool thing to do there is, the cost of what things typically should be in each country, uh, where to go, and kind of the best times, and all these other things. I was figuring out those details so that while I arrived there, I could figure out where I wanted to go and what to do first, uh, which I think is the smartest way to do long-term travel. Don't book anything in advance other than your first place to stay, which is what I did. And I'll get into that in a sec. So what I'm going to talk about next is leading up to that whole adventure that changed my life. And the first thing that I I genuinely think changed my life was honestly, before I even left, it was the eight weeks heading before I headed out. So another quick water. What I realized was it was about eight weeks before no, it was, yeah, it was about eight, nine weeks before I was about to go. I had just finished my semester at Carleton and I was like, you know what? Like I have two, $300 in my bank account and I need and my budget I was hoping for was going to be about five grand as Canadian. So I was, I was hoping to have about five grand to head out to Asia with, and I was going to make that work for 10 weeks. Uh, so yeah, it was going to be pretty intense budget, but I was going to make it work um, at all costs. And so I was like, you know what? Like I've got eight weeks to make five grand. I'm only working a part-time job at minimum wage. How the fuck am I going to do this? And that's when I was like, you know what? I'm going to take every ounce of effort and energy into working 
as many different ways and finding as many different ways to make money as I possibly can to make this work because I want this so bad. I wanted this as bad as I could. I wanted to breathe. And that's not an exaggeration. There's nothing I've ever had in my life that I've wanted more than to go on that trip, go on that whole adventure to make that happen. And there's nothing that's been more fulfilling than chasing that dream and chasing that ambition and actually making it a reality. And so the first thing I ended up doing was starting my own car detailing business. I never detailed cars, but I knew I could figure it out and I could figure out quick. And if I could get clients right away, I could make some money. And so for about seven weeks, I did about two cars a week. So I got about 13 or 14 cars total. And I made about, I think it was like 1500 bucks. I made about 1500 bucks to contribute to my trip, which was incredible. And so basically I, I went into all these cars. I'd take out everything, I'd vacuum every single detail and nook and cranny. On top of that, I would grab like freaking toothpicks and toothbrushes and I'd go right into every little tiny, tiny crack and then I'd just get out all the dirt. I'd suck it all out and then I'd take the armor all and I'd go through and scrub through. I'd wax the vehicles. I'd get right into the tires and shine them. I'd make sure that these cars look better than what they did on the lots. And it was it, it would take me a while. And so some cars I'd make $80, some cars I'd make $130. It depended on the size of the vehicle depending on if they were waxing or not. And so, yeah, I was eventually able to pay for a solid chunk of my budget. And so that was about twice a week. And so then I was working at Extreme. I was starting at about three times a week. And then I was able to convince my manager to schedule me for four. And then on top of that, I was like, you know what? Like if anybody ever like sends a message in the group or like emails like, oh, can somebody take my shift? I will take it right there. No questions unless I have a car, obviously. And so I did that. I took every single shift that I could. I'm working about 30 hours a week at the trampoline park. Uh, I'm getting about anywhere from 12 to 18 hours a week uh, doing cars as it takes anywhere from six to nine hours to do a vehicle, uh, depending on them. And there were many days that I'd wake up uh, reasonably early. I'd go in, start the car by uh, start doing the car by nine and by 3.30, finish it up, get my money, four o'clock, start work, go work to 9.30 and then go to the gym after do, st do stuff like that. So then I was like, okay, this is going great. Like I'm working. I've got anywhere from like 42 to like 48 hours of work guaranteed a week. But I was like, it's still not enough. Like I'm still not going to be able to afford like the trip at this rate. Like I have to find more and more and more. And so luckily for me, if a couple opportunities popped up. So one of them was I was going twice a week to a place called Laws of Motion which here in Ottawa is a trampoline, tumbling, parkour, uh, gymnastics facility. And every Monday to, uh, and Wednesday nights from 9 p.m. to a 11 p.m., they have open gyms, which are 10 bucks cash, and you go and you can learn whatever tricks you want. You can do whatever. And I got really into acrobatics. I started doing, like, standing backflips, wall flips. Just loved it. It was really great exercise. Um, and then I was taking my workouts really seriously then because I just wanted to keep moving and keep exercising. And I noticed that the more work that I put in into the cars, into extreme, the more I wanted to work out, the more I wanted to do productive things, the more I wanted to occupy myself with things that I knew were benefiting my trip because every dollar I was thinking of, I was like, if I do an $80 car today, then that's going to be like, you know, like four days of meals, uh, like three to four days of meals or like a week's worth of accommodations while I'm in Asia. I kept thinking that. So while I'm in... I kept going to Laws of Motion. Uh, the owner there, Nick, 
who was a fantastic guy and coach, uh, and we became buddies while uh, I was going there, um, like knew that I was a videographer and mentioned that him and his wife were getting married at the end of May and was wondering if I would be interested in filming it. And I was like, oh my God, another opportunity. There it is. That's another thing. Um, and so I emphatically agreed to it. And so from there, uh, I was able to work a wedding where at the end of May, I it was a 12 or 13 hour shoot all day. And I was paid $500 for it, which by wedding standards, especially video standards is very low, but I wasn't bothered by it. I was so stoked. I had only been an assistant filmer on one wedding before, and I was knew that I was heading in to be a one-man show, one-man team. I, I didn't. I knew that their budget wasn't that high because they were spending on so many other things to make the wedding incredibly beautiful, which was amazing. And I was like, you know what? Like, I'll take whatever I can get, anything I can get. I'll just do it. And I knew that if I made this product good, this wedding video good in the future, I could possibly get new opportunities to do this. And especially when you're in your late 20s and early 30s, they probably, I, I knew that they would probably have future couples that may want to video. And so I knew that it was all upside. So I go and I film the whole day. And I knew that their expectations were not low because of me, but they were just like, like they just wanted something chill. They were like, yeah, we just want you to come in, like film, like kind of, uh, get the day, obviously get the big events, kind of show us getting prepared and like just make it nice and yeah, well, we're fine with whatever. So I was like, oh, the pressure is really low. All I have to do is exceed expectations. That was the standard and precedent I set for myself. I was like, let's go and exceed expectations. Let's make something that they're going to love. Let's make something they're going to look back on and something that they can make sure looks really, really nice that they can really enjoy for a long time. And not just that, but make sure that it's delivered faster than they're expecting. So they're like, yeah, send it to us whenever you can. Like if you can get it to uh, get it to us before you leave on your trip, that'd be great. We know you leave in three weeks. I was like, yeah, that's fine. I'll have it to you within a week. And they're like, oh, don't, don't rush it. And I delivered it within a week. So within that week, I spent probably about a 20, 20, 30, 20 to 30 hours editing that wedding video. It was about 12 minutes long. Um, I really put as much effort into making it look um, nice, conveying the story of the day. And the reception I got was was beautiful. They loved it. I ended up getting tipped out and made about 700 bucks off of that one video. So there's a large portion of my trip that has been financed just from one project. So I was like, sweet. This is really, really helping me out. So I've got all these cars I'm doing. I've got the wedding that's helped me out. I've got like 30 to, and sometimes I'm getting 35 hours at extreme because I kept picking up shift after shift after shift. And I was like, it's still not enough. It's still not enough. I am working seven days a week. I am not stopping. It was over a month, 30 plus days of not a single day off. And I was like, I still need more. And my buddy Gavin, who worked with me at Extreme Gavin Gray, if you are listening to this, I miss you, buddy. Uh, I hope you're in Ottawa soon. I don't know if you will be, but we like really miss you. We had such a damn good summer. Um, so yeah, that was just a little shout out for my boy, GG. Um, but yeah, so Gavin tells me that he put up an ad because uh, he was inspired by me doing car detailing that he wanted to get some side hustle cash. And so his idea was he put up an ad on Kijiji for his services to do yard work for people. He was like, I'll mow lawns, I'll rake lawns, I'll do whatever, I'll move shit, like whatever you need me to do, I'll do it. And he's like, my rate's $20 an hour. And he ended up getting so many damn inquiries 
uh, from so many different people that he couldn't couldn't take everybody. Like he just couldn't manage it. And so he mentioned it to me, and I was like, "Yes, I am down." And so we ended up together doing a bunch of like different works for people, rain or shine. If it was rainy, we were out there raking. If it was sunny and baking, we were out there. We went all the time. If I didn't have a car, I was doing yard work. If I didn't have a shift, I was doing yard work. And we probably did this about seven or eight times. And that was another way to make like close to a grand, which was fantastic. And so it was stacking all these other things on top of each other to make this dream and this goal happen within eight weeks, which is not a long period of time. And eventually, after 54 days without a single day off, working like 55 plus hours a week, every single every single week leading up, I wasn't able to find a yard to do. I wasn't able to get a shift at Extreme, and I wasn't able to find a car, and I wasn't able to find a video client. So I was like, wow, I guess I kind of have a break. And that was about a week before I left on my trip. Um, after that... Uh, I probably worked another five days out of the seven uh, and then kind of spent the last like day or two really just spending time with family and friends, uh, making sure that I said my goodbyes and kind of knew that uh, I wasn't ignoring anybody. And one of the things that was really nice was Philippe, if you're listening, was going out to dinner with Philippe. Uh, Philippe's one of my best, best friends. And we went out for dinner and it was the night before... I left on my trip and it was the night before he graduated, which was very symbolic as like kind of like the beginning of new lives for us because I knew that this trip would change me. I knew that this trip would point me further in the direction of the career that I want to create for myself and the dreams that I have. And I knew that for him, like graduating was something that he worked so damn hard for and even got on the honor roll or not honor roll Dean's list. So shout out to, to my boy Philippe. Um, and so that was, it was just such a, an incredible accumulation of hard work, hard work that I'd never done in my life, hard work that I never thought I would enjoy either because there's nothing fun about taking a toothpick and scraping it through every little crack in a vehicle just to get out those little tiny particles of dust and dirt. There's nothing fun about that. There's nothing fun about taking a shed and just taking it out bit by bit and then you realize that there was a, like a mice nest that you have to clear out and it's gross and it's probably been in there for years and it smells there's nothing fun about that there's nothing fun about like working in i mean there there's some things fun about working in trampoline park but there's not it's not that fun of a job you know and so for me it was taking these things and learning how to love love them because i knew that every single cent and every single dollar from the work that i was putting into the cars or the yards or wherever i was putting into my trip and I knew that it was going to benefit me doing the thing that I loved most. So at all costs, I did every single bit of it that I possibly could. And it was incredible. That whole process, that whole journey is something that I could not be more grateful for. And it stuck with me today. It stuck with me, that work ethic to just like try and like go out every single day and do more and more and more and take on more tasks, find new ways to make uh, extra bits of cash here and there. Um which is really, really nice. Like, I think on weekends, hopefully soon, I will be filming more weddings, uh, which is looking like an opportunity that is coming up, um, which I couldn't be more excited for. But anyway, so that kind of brings me to right when I left to go on my trip. So it is now June 14th, and 
I'm about to leave. And my mom drives me to the airport. We arrive at like five in the morning. It's just me and my mom. And it's it's kind of surreal because I know it's the first time I'm kind of leaving my family behind like this for months at a time. It's the first time I'm going to the other side of the world, to a new continent, to a bunch of new countries. And it's the first time that I'm really on my own. And I was like, wow. And it, and I know a lot of people were asking me at the time, like, were you scared? Like, were you nervous? And I was like, no, like, I was just stoked. Like, I knew so deeply integrated into myself that this was something I had to do, something that I, I knew was going to be right for me, something that was going to benefit me so much in the long term that I had to do it. And so I said goodbye to my mom, which was sad. Um, it was, that was really surreal, you know, kind of just seeing, like, your mom look over baby boy for the first time, you know. Um, and so, but, you know, just got to spread your wings and learn how to fly. Kelly Clarkson all day. Um, and so, yeah, I headed out. I went from Ottawa to Chicago, from Chicago to Tokyo, which was a 13-hour flight, which I was in the worst seat on the plane, the middle so if there's three rows that go across the plane, um, I was in the middle row of the middle seat at the very back. There's no, so I had no, I couldn't recline whatsoever. But people in front of me could recline, so like I had even less space. Mind you, I didn't give a shit. I was so happy to be going on this trip that like I could have been on the fucking floor and I would have been just as happy. There's like I was, I was just on this complete level of elation that is very hard to describe and experience because I had spent so much time planning this trip out from the time from the moment that I started looking at Kona Hawaii for manta rays to the, all the work that led up to this it was like a year and a half worth of like just consistent planning and just execution against my dream and finally it was the first like realization of it was actually heading out there and so Destination Uno was Bangkok. I only spent about three days in Bangkok. Uh, it took me like 33 hours to leave my house to arrive in my bed in my hostel in Bangkok, uh, which was pretty intense. Um, I liked Bangkok. It was decent. Uh, I spent a lot of time near Khaosan Road, which is like the backpacker's place. Uh, it's a crazy party party area. Um as well as like kind of just has a lot of incredible street food. That's probably my favorite part of Bangkok is just the street food you get. It's really, really cheap. You spend like three bucks on a meal. Uh, you get like pad thai for like two bucks and it's better than any Thai express you'll have here. Uh, or you like, I remember I tried a bunch of things there uh, in terms of street food. I tried uh, like, I think it was like, I, try, I tried pad thai, um, which you kind of got to do. Spring rolls, got to do. Uh, then I had like liver. I had chicken skewers, beef skewers, and then I had a scorpion skewer. Uh, and the scorpion skewer was disgusting. It was not what I expected at all. It was, um, I kind of knew that the only way I could eat a scorpion would be to kind of one-shot it. You know, just drop it right into the mouth. Like, don't nibble on it. Just like the whole damn thing. Just go for it. Um, and it was crunchy and salty. And then the more you chew, like, the mushier it got. And then, like, your whole, like, mouth turns, like, this, like, charcoal cover. Color? Not cover. Color. 
yeah, your mouth turns like completely charcoal and it's just like gross. And then you have to like stomach this like you have to like find a way to like swallow the thick scorpion exoskeleton sludge that you just chewed and it's disgusting. Um, but after Scorpion, I was like, fuck this, I'm getting out of Bangkok. And my original plan was to, uh, head to Chiang Mai, which is in the North. And I was going to go volunteer with elephants for a few days. Mind you, like I said earlier, the only thing I actually had booked when I left were three nights of accommodation. I had nothing booked after that. I left my plans totally open. And I knew that if I was, if I was going to be solo traveling, I wanted to be as free as possible. Every decision I wanted to make, I wanted to make it for myself by myself, um, which was totally liberating which i think was like right off the bat i was like damn as an extroverted guy as somebody who will walk into a room and try to befriend every damn person in the building i was so damn happy to be by myself and it was kind of like the first moments that i was like okay okay i'm really starting to vibe with this so after that i realized as i started talking to more and more travelers and more and more people that in the Gulf of Thailand, the rainy season is supposed to come within the next three weeks. So my window of opportunity to go there, like, I was hoping to spend, like, a week or two out in the north. And then I was like, wait, if I do that, then it might be the rainy season. So my plan that I really wanted to do was get my diving license in Koh Tao, my scuba diving license. So I was like, all right, I got to go do this. And I have to do it now. Um, so I booked a sleeper train, which is a train that has kind of, like, bunk beds. Uh, and curtains that you kind of pull out it's a small tiny ass bed but you know you got like a nine ten hour train ride overnight and uh you take it and it's pretty cheap uh it was honestly i think i paid like 20 or 30 dollars to get from bangkok to kotao including the train which was like nine or ten hours and then you get off and at this uh train station at like 4 30 in the morning in southern thailand at this place called chumpon you're there and then like two hours or an hour and a half later at six, the bus picks you up. You go for a 45 minute bus ride to, uh, to the ferry, get on the ferry, like two hour bus ride. You get there around like eight or it's like an hour ferry. Sorry. So you're, you get there at like seven, eight in the morning. Um, so I was pretty exhausted, but I get to Kotao, which is just island paradise. It's uh, 18 square kilometers. It's not very big, uh, but there's these beautiful streets like bunch of like cafes uh and restaurants uh a bunch of really cool hip hostels beaches that are gorgeous everywhere incredible boulders um and i i knew as soon as i arrived it was beautiful and sunny i was like okay like definitely made the right choice so i get to my hostel uh, a couple days or the next day I, I teach myself how to ride mopeds and scooters and i go through the whole island explore everything get some beautiful drone shots um, and really just fall in love with it there. And then the next day I, I book my scuba license or yeah, scuba license, like course, um, ended up like I booked it to be a part of a group, but I was the only person that booked, which was really lucky for me. So I actually ended up being the only person in the class. My instructor, his name was also James Lee. So we literally had the first, same first and last name, which was pretty cool. Um, and it was at a place they're called scuba club which i highly recommend james was fantastic um mind you on the last day i ended up uh being trained and getting my license from my boy casey casey russell uh and casey actually if you're going to kotow and you want to get your diving license it's literally the, it's probably the best place in the world to do it 
Uh, there's over 200 diving schools. You get to go through coral reefs in the Gulf of Thailand, beautiful crystal clear water. Uh, it's warm, it's hot, it's beautiful, great wildlife. Um, and anyway, so Casey, uh, who is this like hilarious British dude, he's a great, great guy, and we're still in contact a little bit today. Uh, he opened up his own scuba center there called Scuba Doo. So instead of Scooby Doo, Scuba Doo. Uh, and they're based in Kotao, and it's like I can't recommend him enough. So if you're in Kotao uh, and you want to get your diving license, that's a bucket list thing for you. I really can't recommend either Scuba Club or Scuba Doo enough. Uh, 10 out of 10, like really the best experience. Uh, so yeah, I got my diving license there, explored like the whole island uh, like over and over again. Uh, and I really just fell in love with the island life. But after Kotao, it was on to the next island, which was Copenhagen. And Copenhagen is where the the monthly full moon party is. You probably heard about the Thai full moon parties. They're nuts. Probably some of the biggest parties in the world. Uh, 50,000 people from across the world co- come together every month just to party on this island. It's nuts. And I'm not a big party guy. I'm much more the type that I would rather work than party. In fact, like since I've been back from my trip, uh, I think I've gone out once. Uh, twice because I was out once in Toronto. Twice in six months, I spend pretty much every single weekend uh, working. Uh, if Fridays I go to the gym, Saturday nights uh, I'm watching hockey, and then I'm, I'm maybe working on my website. I'd rather do that. But anyway, so I was like, okay, I'm going to let loose and, and kind of party a bit here because it's the full moon, you know, like June 27th, 2018, like it's going down. So I arrived June 24th, a few days before, because I wanted to explore a lot of the island. Uh, and I meet I met so many people. The first uh, people that I met there uh, were Rosa and Julie, uh, two Dutch girls. Uh, and we're still in contact today. So girls, if you're listening, like, I miss y'all. Um, we had, like, literally just the best week. And honestly, I think um, my favorite place was not Copenhagen, but I think the best people I met in my whole trip for two and a half months were there. So Rosa and Julie, Marcus and Robert, the two German dudes, uh, Abby and Ellie, two British girls, Miss Y'all, um, still in contact. Uh, actually, yeah, I was talking to Abby like I think like two days ago. So, um, but yeah, so I met so many, and then we had uh, the greatest dorm ever. Uh, we had the the New Zealand ginger dude, Sam. Sam was probably the funniest dude ever. Um, Maybe if you, uh, maybe on another podcast, I'll talk about uh, Sam's hooker stories because uh, like his experiences with Thai hookers, but I can't because I don't have enough time because I have so many other things to talk about. So yeah, uh, if you if you want to listen to uh, to another pod and hear about the uh, the Kiwis hooker adventures, let me know. Um, and so uh, yeah, so we were we had the best time ever in uh in Copenhagen which was insane and so basically when you're there it you can there's several different party options uh so the full moon is the main event but leading up to each day you have the uh what's it called there's the uh, waterfall party one night then the next night is the jungle party then the next night is the full moon party and so when all this goes down it gets pretty nuts. So I decided to skip the waterfall party because I was like, no way I'm doing three in a row. But I did the jungle party and I did the full moon. And I loved both. But most people, I, don't, I won't say most, but a lot of people complain about the full moon. I personally loved it. 
because a lot of people complain it's like 50,000 people all in one giant beach and just gets like too crazy. But the thing that I loved about it was that because there's so many people, there is literally some sort of music or some sort of scene for everyone. So if you're into dubstep, there's something for you. If you're into like pub music and like rock and roll, there's something for you. And there's everything in between because there's just so many venues. It's massive. There's streets that are selling street food or buckets of like cocktails and stuff. Just everything is everywhere. And it's nuts. There's like pyrotechnics, like there's double dutch going on or jump rope where the ropes are literally burning on fire. Limbos where there's they're on fire. There's like Freaking like monuments that they burn and then everything is glowing and it's nuts. That's crazy. And people come from all over the world to experience this. And it was a lot of fun. Like, I really think if you ever want to do Southeast Asia, I do think it's something that you should add just for at least to say you did it. Uh, formulate your own opinion if you enjoyed it or not. I personally love the full moon party. And honestly, give yourself like five days in Copenhagen. If you're doing the full moon party, there is so much to do on that island. You can scooter all over the place. The friggin' beach views are insane. You go everywhere. It's just incredibly beautiful. And so, yeah, 10 out of 10 recommend Copenhagen, especially uh, around the full moon jungle party time. But after then, it was time to leave the island life and head to the jungles where I went to Kalsok National Park. Uh, and Kalsok National Park I believe is the most beautiful part of Thailand. Uh, it's a lot of people don't know about it. A lot of people kind of skip out on it, uh, but it's in it's kind of like a couple hours north of Phuket, which is one of the main places people go to. Uh, and they have a giant reservoir, which is a massive lake with massive limestone karsts and mountains that just erupt, looking like they're straight out of Avatar into this emerald green lake. It's so like. Like, my jaw was friggin' on the floor. And so I wanted to go there, and when I arrived there, I got really lucky. And so my whole purpose of my trip, uh, and I'm going to get a little bit businessy right here and kind of go off on a slight blart, slight tangent, and then loop it back. And so my goal with my career uh, is to be a professional videographer, storyteller, filmmaker, as well as photographer that can go the world and be paid by brands, travel agencies, tourism boards, hotel chains, resorts, or whoever uh, to make really captivating content of really incredible places and tell really remarkable stories. Uh, I'd love to do that even further within charity organizations uh, across the world. That'd be something that'd be really fulfilling to me. But not just that. On top of that, what I also find equally as fascinating and fun, which I don't get to talk about as much, is the marketing side. So ideally, what I'd love to do is be able to make this content for these people, make incredible photos, take incredible photos, and make these videos that are really great. And But start with them and be like, all right, we have to analyze your business and think of who your ideal customer is and how we can make something that captivates them best. So making something that is contextually captivating for a specific group of people, and then after that, showing them, if they are small business especially, how to target those people through Facebook advertising, whether that's through funnel systems, whether that's through targeted ad campaigns, and really going to the nitty-gritty nitty side of things, how to make this content and put it in front of the people that are going to enjoy it best so that they can increase their brand awareness, 
drive sales for whatever it is. That's the stuff I find incredibly fascinating. I spend so much time learning about the business side of things. And yeah, that's really, really what I love. So with that said, I was able to go to Kalsok National Park and I was I ended up just having a conversation with the owner of the resort at Kalsok Riverfront Resort, uh, which is it was about like $18, $20 Canadian a night um, for like a resort. Like it was dope. Like that's how cheap Asia is. Like uh, on a side note, like you can pay like five bucks a night for many hostels. Five to ten bucks a night is kind of the typical hostel price, and they're a lot nicer hostels than you would expect too. Um, so that's just a little tip in terms of your budgeting. And so I was speaking to the owner, and his name's Bodie, and he's from California, and he was basically uh, asking me some questions. And then when I told him I was a videographer, he was like. I'm actually in need of video service. I was like, oh, well, what do you mean? Um, And so we kind of kept talking, and eventually we agreed that I was going to stay in Kalsok National Park at this resort with free accommodation, free food for three meals a day, and free excursions. So everything free for the next two weeks in exchange for videos and photos of their excursions and their resort. And I was like, this is exactly what I'm trying to do with my career. This is exactly what I want to do with my life. And I was, it was the first real experience that I had trading my services for travel, which I couldn't be more thrilled about. And so we did so many crazy things. One of the coolest things I did was spending my Canada Day, July 1st, uh, with an elephant. And I'm going to go off on another slight blart, blart, but I think this is incredibly important. About the elephant industry in Thailand. Um, so many of the elephants in Thailand um, that you see that people are riding or are playing soccer or doing games or are trained in those sort of ways, all of those elephants have to be, many of them are taken from their families in the wild. Many are bred in, in captivity like this in really poor environments. And what ends up happening to these elephants is that they get they get so brutally abused for so long that they become completely and entirely submissive to their captors. And it's one of the most terrifying and terrible things that was within the industry. But what's been really positive and what's been going on recently is that a lot of people, and that was just my dad coming into the office, closing the door, if you heard that. Um, a lot of people in Thailand are starting to realize that consumer demand is starting to realize how terrible these elephants are treated, how they are left in shackles, how they are beaten and they are starved and they are mentally and physically abused. And if you actually want to learn more about this, there's a great little documentary called Black Tusk on YouTube by... Uh, Lost LeBlanc, who is one of my main resources of research. Uh, he did a phenomenal documentary, another Canadian vlogger. Um, and it was really, really great to see. But anyway, so people started realizing that these tourists are aware of the treatment of these creatures and they're not going to stand by this. So what alternatives can we provide? And so some fantastic people from all across Thailand um, especially in the north, which I never got to experience, but they did do this at this one farm that I got to got to go to. Started realizing that 
when people understand the abuse that these animals go through, they are not going to put their money there. But what they will put their money to is making sure that these animals are safe, they're happy, they're in a good environment, and they're rehabilitating, and they can still get that one-on-one intimate experience. And so that's what this one place did. At the time, it was called uh, Kausok Elephant Park, but I think it's called like Gems Elephant Park somewhere. Um, if you send, if you want to, if you're interested, you can send me uh, info, and I can easily give it to you. Um, and so what they do is they purchase these previously abused animals and they bring them to places where they can be rehabilitated. And these animals can never be reintroduced into the wild because they've been so abused for so long. They're so used to people that they're always going to be drawn back to people and villages and they'll never be fully acclimated into the wild and they won't, they don't have the survival skills. So the only thing that they can do is to reintroduce them into a, a life of happiness. And that's they took this one elephant called Bonshu, and he was the first elephant. I believe they have two now, and I was one of the first people that got to experience him. Uh, he had only been repurchased. He had only been like purchased from these people a couple months ago, and he was finally starting to become more and more used to people. And we were able to bathe him in the river and give him a mud bath. Uh, scrub him down and make sure that he was all clean. We were able to feed him. We were able to give him support and love and affection because it, it was it was one of the few times in his life he'd received that. And he was so curious. And most people get to spend 45 minutes with him. And I was able to get four hours because they wanted that footage. I was photographing him. And it was one of the most surreal experiences, having a complete giant, a beast, a gentle giant, an old soul. It was about 45 years old. And it was just precious. And I, I knew that at that moment, I was like, damn, like, I am so on the right path. This is exactly where I want to be. This is the conservation efforts that I want to be a part of. And the education that I want to provide to people that these animals are abused horrifically. And we can be better as tourists by just not doing those experiences. And we can do the alternatives, the rehabilitation, uh, the rehabilitative centers. These are the positive places for these animals to go. And it was it was phenomenal. And then from there, we went through the jungles where I had so much experience with other wildlife, whether it was like really large fish or we saw like uh, gower tracks, which are uh, water buffalo. And I even had another elephant experience with about 30 meters away was an elephant that was perched up against the riverbank and I was able to take my paddleboard and go up up to it nice and slow and nice and calm and it was surreal. It was six in the morning and we are there and I see this elephant just looking at me with intense curiosity, the same that I was giving him and it's minding its own business and I'm just completely enamored that it's a wild elephant. I'm hours deep into the jungle. Two to three tours a month get to go where I am. We're so deep. And it was one of the most precious moments of my life. But after that, I ended up making eight videos and 450 edited photos for them within 12 days, which was one of the most incredible experiences ever. Um, but then I knew that I had to go, and that's kind of where... The next place I went to was one of the more spontaneous adventures of the trip. 
and I went to Malaysia. I went to Kuala Lumpur, and I'm in Kuala Lumpur uh, basically for the the sheer reason that I needed to fix my drone. My drone wasn't working. wasn't able to get drone footage, and I knew that if I wanted to get clients for the rest of my trip, like I had to have a working drone. The only two places to get it fixed were either in Bangkok or Kuala Lumpur. So I was like, you know what? New country, new city. Let's do it. Found an $80 round-trip flight out of Phuket for three days. And I was like, sweet, 80 bucks round-trip, Canadian. So I was like, 50 American round-trip. Um, so unbelievable. Went to Malaysia. Uh, while I was in Malaysia, I was able to see my boy Gary Vaynerchuk. He just happened to be having a keynote speech in Kuala Lumpur. So I tweeted at him, see if he could hook me up uh, with a ticket. And he did. Like, I got a free ticket to the event. I was able to see one of my heroes, Gary V, Gary Vaynerchuk. If you're not on that, you should be. Um, great business content. Uh, and so I was able to see him. I was able to explore the whole city, go to the top of uh, the KL Tower, uh, photograph the Patronus Towers at night, uh, try all this Indian food, meet a bunch of people. And it was just a great experience. Um, after that, I headed back to Thailand because I had another client uh, out in Krabi at a, uh, on Tonsoy Beach. And Tonsoy Beach is this tiny little beach right next to Rayleigh. Rayleigh is one of the most top popular beaches in Thailand, by the way. Uh, it's right along the coast with those limestone cliffs again. Like, it's exactly what you see in the movies. And so I ended up having a client there that allowed me a free accommodation in exchange for photos and videos of rock climbing and like the beaches and kind of the resort there. It's called Chill Out Tonsoy. It's a really cheap resort, but you know what? It's great. Tonsoy has maybe like a hundred people on it any given time. And pretty much if you spend three days there, you get to know every single person. And it's real it's kind of like a hippie vibe. It's the coolest place I've ever been. Like honestly if you're gonna do Rayleigh, stay in Tonsoy. It's cheaper. You can walk to Rayleigh. There's a nice little hike through uh through the forest that you can do. And it's like, it's the best. And it's cheap too. Um, and, and also, you got to do Mama's Kitchen. Mama's Kitchen, it's like this cheap Thai restaurant. Like little plastic chairs. It's a small little hut. You go and that's where everybody goes. If, you, if you're staying on Tonsoy, your, your dinners are at Mama's Kitchen. And it's the best. Um, but after Tonsoy, I went to Phuket. Phuket for two days. And I know this is getting long. Uh, but I'm going to try and like accelerate the stories because... I could legit talk about this forever. This is like the best experience of my life this whole trip. So after Phuket, went to Philippines. And if you are not going to, if you are going to Southeast Asia and you decide not to go to the Philippines, you could not be making a greater mistake. I will say this so emphatically that the Philippines is my favorite country in the world. I think it is one of the most beautiful places you will ever visit as well as has the most incredible local people and most warm and most heartwarming people you will ever meet in your life. And they make the experience better. They are welcoming. They're warm. I I keep saying the same words over and over again, but it's, it's because I'm at a loss for words for what this, this country is, is to me. Um, I flew into Cebu city, not knowing where I was going to go. Originally I was planning two weeks in the Philippines. I only ended up having nine days so I decided to spend a week in Shargao, which was the greatest decision, decision of my life. I stayed in Cebu City for a day, went to Shargao the next day, uh, and stayed there for a week. And I had another client there 
um, where I was able to do video work in exchange for free accommodation at a place for an Airbnb called Isla Haraway. That's Isla, I-S-L-A, H-A-R-U-H-A-Y, uh, just outside of the town of Dapa. Most people stay in General Luna when they go to Shargao. That's where all the tourists are. I stayed with all the locals, and I couldn't recommend that enough because of the local people that really enhance that experience. And I'm not going to talk about Shargao too much, but I will say that I did make a short film that did explain how much I loved this island, how much it meant to me, how much the people really changed my experience, and it shows the incredible footage uh, that I was lucky enough to get across all of the islands there. Uh, and I really think it's the most beautiful place in the world. It's it's remarkable. Like, I think about Shargao every day of my life, and that's a genuine, a genuine fact. I also have a video of the top 10 best things to do in and around Shargao on YouTube, so if you look up top 10 Shargao, you'll see it by Nomads, uh, which I can't recommend enough. So, yeah, that was, I had a month in Thailand and then a couple weeks in the Philippines. And it was at that point that I started to just really intensely reflect on my life. Because every single day when you are solo traveling, you are constantly just thinking. That's all you have time to do. You think about how did the past lead me to here? How you think about the present moment and how lucky you are to be in this place and you think about the future and how you've changed and how you want to bring some of this this livelihood to the rest to the, to your friends and to the rest of your life and that is what I found solo travel gave to me and spending time in the Philippines and spending time in Thailand I started to realize that these people don't have as much as what I do. They are not as fortunate as what I have. These people that I'm meeting, these local people, they don't have the option to visit my country the way I do to visit theirs. They may not even ever leave their country, let alone their city or their town, because they may not ever have the money to do so, the financial resources that's required to go see these places. And... Even if they were to start their own little businesses of making cars or doing yard work and doing all these other things, they still wouldn't make enough ever to go do the things that I am. That's when I began to really thoroughly just appreciate what I had. And not just that, I saw these kids that maybe they lived in homes without air conditioning or without proper plumbing because in many places in Thailand and the Philippines you can't flush your toilets you take a bucket and you pour water into the toilet until everything is out and it just you know moves out or sometimes I didn't have showers sometimes I'd have to take another bucket and pour cold water over my head and then use soap in any way that I could to wash myself because I didn't have, there was no showers. These people don't have hot water, you know, and all these other things. But they still carry on their lives with a greater smile and with greater happiness and fulfillment than the majority of people I see back home. And it was that that I realized that that was the lesson that I really wanted to take back with me from my travels. That 
you can have these experiences and you can but unless you actually observe and observe with effort to make change then you never actually learn and so i wanted to learn observe and make that change within myself and i knew that I wanted to carry on my life with as much vigor and happiness regardless of any situation I'm in. If if life's bad and I'm, you know, like I'm I'm at this video thing for years and I'm just not making money and it's still taking time, keep going, keep pushing, keep doing it with a smile on my face because I know that eventually that hard work will pay off and I know that there are people in worse situations than me every single day that are still and always able to find that smile and to find that happiness and to find that purpose. And if they can do it, then I can too. And that's what the first like six weeks of my my trip did. And after the Philippines, I was I was on my way to Bali. Bali is the most visited island and place in all of Southeast Asia. You've probably seen it all over Instagram. You've probably seen those rice terraces, those poolside breakfasts. You know, you've probably seen those beaches, those surfing. Bali is the place that supposedly has it all and bali is also the place where i was eventually going to find the mantas so while i was in bali though things ended up taking a pretty dark turn as within about three days of my arrival i felt an entire building that i was working in shake relentlessly i thought it was going to collapse i thought i was going to be some serious trouble i heard people outside screaming and a 7.0 earthquake ripped through lombok which is the next door island to bali now my plan for indonesia was to only have two weeks in bali a week in lombok and then a week in komodo where the dragons were as i believe i mentioned before and I woke up to the next morning after finding out that this earthquake was a magnitude 7.0, the same magnitude that decimated Haiti, I believe in 2009. And I woke up to the news that 92 people had died. 92 people had just lost their lives at the same moment that I was scrambling looking for an exit. There were people that were being crumbled and crushed, their homes destroyed, their schools gone, buildings collapsed, everything. Jobs, no more. And it was surreal knowing that I had to be there next week, that there would be no place for me to go in many places. You know, like I was supposed to have another client there that was going to let me stay there in exchange for video footage again. But he was a doctor, and he was preoccupied saving lives of people that were trapped, that were injured, and they needed every resource that they could. And that number grew the next day to 150. And then a few days later, more and more earthquakes happened. Another 6.0, another 6.3, and that number kept going up. And then after two weeks I'd been in Bali, another 6.9 earthquake happened, nearly as large as the one that I had experienced a couple weeks prior. And that number raised to 400. 
And during this whole time, I kept thinking about the families that were being ripped apart, the opportunities that were being lost. And then I thought to myself, I was like, well, what's there for me to smile about? Even if it is selfish, like think of that because it was bringing me down. And I was like, well, I have my health. I'm safe here. And I have these learnings, these teachings that I can have. And I kept those lessons from the Philippines and I tried to apply them there. And even though it may have been selfish to have been happy in a dark time, I think that does show a lot that if it had affected me further, I still would have tried to find something to smile about. And I think that is something that we can all take. But in between those, I was able to have my greatest smile and the greatest experience of my whole trip, which I think will be one of the last stories I tell on this podcast because it is exceeding over an hour again. Because again, as in at the beginning of this podcast, this is the second time I'm recording it and I'm losing my voice because it's, you know, a lot of talking. But in between the two major earthquakes, I decided to make the bold move of getting off of Bali and going over the waters. Despite if another earthquake happened, there may have been tsunami warnings, which didn't happen, so whatever. Eh. Uh, but I went to Nusa Penida. Nusa Penida is the island that is just southeast of Bali where I could go with the mantas. And this is where I want to kind of take the emotions of this podcast and bring them back up because after so much kind of stress with earthquakes and wondering about my own safety, wondering about the safety of the people in Lombok and the people I was in contact with and wondering what they were going on, I was able to do something entirely for myself that was entirely based on on fulfillment, entirely based on an accumulation of two years, a year and a half, two years of dreaming and all the work that I put into and that was finally going out to see the mantas. And so I go to Nusa Penida, which is a beautiful island, and I... I scooter the entire place. I go every, I go north, I go south, I go east, I go west. I find every little place you can possibly find. I go to the most beautiful wor- beach in the world called Kalinking Beach. The dinosaur head that everybody sees with the sketchiest hike down. I go down there and I see everything. I see the mantas from the top and I see them there, but knowing that it's too dangerous to swim with them due to the high tides and currents. So the next day, I go to a place called Crystal Bay. And while I'm at Crystal Bay, I'm looking around and I'm scavenging, trying to find people to meet because I really need somebody to join me on a tour to go swim with mantas. And I meet this dude, Ben, Ben Lewis from Florida. So if you're listening to this, Ben, shout out to you. And so we pay $20 each Canadian, so 200,000 rupiah, so maybe like 18, 19 bucks Canadian to go snorkeling with manta rays. And at this point, like, my, my heart is pounding. I was like, I've been waiting for this moment for so long. You know, like, it's been so damn long since I've been dreaming of this, since I was a child. It's been a decade, uh, over a decade of me dreaming of being with these creatures, over two years of me planning this trip, over, like, months of me, like, working my damn ass off to make it to this moment specifically. And we go out into the water. And as we get to the to the bay, the captain of the ship yells, Manta, Manta, Manta. And I'm like, holy shit, there's one right there. And he's like, hop in, go in, go in, go in. And so I go into the water. And at this moment, things just slow down. I'm completely immersed in this moment. 20 or 30 seconds after me hopping into the water and swimming out, 
a giant 10-foot wingspan manta like just swirls right in front of me. And I can't even describe the elation that I was feeling. It was truly incredible, a remarkable experience, a childhood dream just completely being realized. And it was at that moment I was just completely present. There was nothing. There was nothing in the past, nothing in the future that I was thinking of. It was that moment completely engulfed with me and this creature. And there was maybe about seven or eight of us in the water with two manta rays about of similar size. One, one was maybe about seven or eight feet, and the other was maybe about 10 or 11. And this is all going on, and I realized... It's almost as if that these creatures can sense my curiosity, can sense my my happiness to, to just being in the in the water with them. And out of all the people in the water, the only person that they genuinely shared the curiosity with was me. And they would come and they'd swim directly at me, facing me eye to eye, and go two they'd go half an inch underneath me, grazing against my body. And then they turn around and loop back and they do it again over and over and over again. And they kept like putting this huge display of their gills just for me. They weren't, they weren't doing it for anyone else. People were coming up to me being like, why are, why are you getting the whole show? I was like, I don't know, maybe they can tell how much I, like, I love this. Like, and that's the thing, mantas are known to be incredibly intuitive creatures. So maybe there was something they were picking up on there. Maybe it was because I had a camera. Maybe they picked up something on my eyes. Because they can recognize human eyes within goggles. Maybe it's all these other things. But it was that moment that they really opened themselves up. And displayed the same curiosity to me as I had to them. And I genuinely think it was one of the greatest moments of my life. And it wasn't just swimming with them. It was knowing the process that was that got me there, knowing the months that it took for me to work my ass off, the 54 consecutive days without a day off, you know, that I, I took to get there, you know, the journey through Thailand and all these other experiences, the planning that was all the way back to Kona, Hawaii that I thought I would do, all of this that led up to this moment. And it was the process I realized then, it was the process I loved just as much as the moment. And I knew that I, I was convinced that I was going to be successful as a videographer one day, and I don't know when that day will be, but it was because I knew that I loved the process just as much as I loved the event. And that is something I think that is invaluable. I think that is something that was one of the major lessons that this trip taught me. Um, So much about self-awareness, and I don't think I would have learned this if I traveled with somebody else, or I think it would have been a lot harder to. I think solo travel really opened me up to those experiences that I wouldn't have experienced otherwise, and I wouldn't have realized without that those incredible moments of self-reflection and the ability to turn myself into my own best friend. Because if you can get to the point of confidence where you become your best friend, you're stoked to go out and do things for yourself, regardless if you're introverted or extroverted. I am so extroverted. And I was able to find myself to become me as my best, best friend. And that was, I think, what I learned from chasing the mantis across the world. And I, I, can't, I can't speak on that enough. So after, after Bali, I was trying to escape the earthquakes and decided to go to Australia for a few days just to relax. 
Got a $160 flight to Perth. Went from Perth back to Bangkok after five days, and from Bangkok I went home. And I had finished the 10 weeks, the 10 greatest weeks of my life. The eight weeks that led up to it of hustle, the months that led up to that of research, and then the 10 weeks that really changed my life forever. And I hope this gives you a little bit of insight into what Southeast Asia is like, what solo travel is like, the lessons that you learn from it, a more intimate view of what it can be. I hope this gives you a little bit more insight to maybe the things that I've done that you maybe didn't know and maybe it inspires you to go because if you have that curiosity to go see some of this world, I think you should take it. And I think you should take it as soon as you possibly can and I think you should put every ounce of resource and effort and energy that you have into making these things happen because it is life-changing, it is amazing, and it is incredible and do it alone and don't be afraid. Just go for it. You will meet people along the way. You will struggle. You will be lonely. You will have those times where you wish you didn't do it. But at the end of the day, it is so worth every bit of it. And I can't recommend it enough. If you want to grow exponentially faster, if you want to find yourself, if you want to become the person that you want to be, there's no better way, in my opinion, than to go somewhere, somewhere you've dreamed of, do something you've always wanted to do and do it for yourself and put every ounce of effort and energy that you have into making it a reality because our life is precious. Our life is valuable. We, be, we can become the architects of our own being. We don't have to live by default. We can live by design and put that effort into designing it. And I could not agree with that sentiment more. Now, with that said, I believe I've made it to the end of what I want to say. I thank you, everybody, for listening to this. This was a solo cast, completely alone. So, yeah, I can't believe I just did that for how long? It's a mi- an hour 17, so quite incredible. I'm pretty happy with myself. I could talk about this all day. There are so many stories and so much that I haven't talked about that I could include. There's so much advice I could give. So if there's any of that, if there's anything, uh, advice, whether it's budgets, where to go, the things to do, um all these other things and you want to know more, feel free to hit me up at James Life on Instagram, life with an extra E, James L-I-F-E-E, or DM us at WLN Podcast uh, if you choose. Uh, you could also email me at Jamie, J-A-M-E-Y, at lifesbetterabroad.com if there's something that you want to know that you can put into email form. Maybe attach some links or do whatever. Um, you know, like shout out to RJ for not being here because this really challenged myself. And like all challenges, I love conquering. So I feel really, really good right now. Uh, but we will go back to our regularly scheduled whole on nothing podcast for next week, as well as just another reminder that we are still running the giveaway for the high performance habits book. So that is running until Saturday, February 1st. Make sure you DM us at WLN podcast the habits that you would develop to survive a post-apocalyptic world. I know that is a little random compared to what I was talking about. And I'm going to leave you with the question of the day. And you can answer this yourself. You can ask this uh, to us. You can answer it to us if you want as well. And that is, if you could go anywhere in the world, where would you go? and Why would you go there? And then on top of that, why haven't you done it already? And so I'm going to leave it at that. So thanks again and uh, cheers. Bye.